0: And so Christ's life, death, and resurrection are yours through faith. When he died, if you believe in him, your sins died with him. And when he got up, you got up. And that same power and person that raised him is the same power and person that lives in you. And no amount of, back, no, no amount of computer software, accountability, or self-focused na- navel-gazing is going to save you. Only Christ can do that work. So we got the problem. The problem is your sin, not just your guilt, but also your corruption. That you walk around, you and I walk around doing, thinking, and saying things that kill us and those around us. And the panacea, the cure, is Christ, the source of life itself. But how do you, like, how do you do that? Like what does that, what is that, what does that path actually look like? What does, what does sanctification mean like what is that what what are we talking about well our confession and catechism and the reformed tradition broadly talk about it in two parts mortification and vivification somebody say mortification and vivification i know it's a little bit of a tongue twister but these are the two things that you need to know about sanctification mortification vivification what is mortification Take a look at Romans 8.13. According to the flesh, you will die. Great start. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So that's where we get the term mortified, put to death. It means that we put our sin to death. It means that we don't play with it. It means that we don't place ourselves in situations where we know that we'll face considerable temptation. It means that we take our sanctification seriously and we take our sin seriously. Before I give this illustration, I want you all to know very clearly that my wife Desiree is a strong, independent black woman. With that, I was hanging out with Slim and Jake one evening about to watch a horror movie, as we are oft to want to do, when I got a series of text messages from my wife, Desiree. These text messages read thus, I'm so sorry, but there's a huge spider, and I kind of want you to come home and kill it. <laughs> I mean HUGE, all caps. Near the back door, but I just lost sight of it while I was texting. I can't sleep until I know it's dead. I actually can't leave the area because I don't want it to go upstairs. I thought it was a huge dust bunny at first. Now my first thought, sinfully, was, girl, you can kill that spider on your own. It's probably not even that big. But I very quickly put that thought to death, told the guys that I had to roll, and I went home and I smashed the mess out of that spider as I do with any bug that makes the life-threatening mistake of entering our household. That is the way we ought to think about our sin. As a pest to be exterminated, not a pet to coddle. Imagine if ants or roaches are streaming in your front door and you just thought, ah, they'll they'll handle themselves. Often that's the way that we treat our relationship with sin. We forget that God's warning to Cain is his warning to all of us. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. But mortification is only part of the equation because the confession that we confessed this morning says that God's work of sanctification enables us to die unto sin. That's the mortification part. But it also says that we're enabled to more and more to live unto righteousness. That's the vivification part. Because the Christian life is not just about the absence and mortification of sin, but it's also about the presence and vivification of virtue and righteousness. So said another way, it's, it's not enough to be anti-racist, we're, we're called to be preachers of the Imago Dei, pro the marginalized, pro the poor, pro the oppressed. It's not, it's not enough to merely be anti-patriarchy, we're called to be be for women in a society that often devalues them, like, like Jesus. It's, it's not enough to merely be as much of the pro-life movement has been since the 60s and 70s, anti-abortion. We're called to be also for life, for education, for relief, for adoption, for the resources that are necessary to build people up, rather than leave them out in the cold. Ancient, ancient Romans. When they, didn't, when they didn't want their children, they would leave them out in the cold to die. And so what did the church do? It took those children in and raised them within its families. Why? Because they understood that Christ was calling them not merely to protest outside of those families' houses, but rather to be his hands and feet, comforting and supporting the abandoned. Putting sin to death isn't the whole of it, because that's just removal. Something needs to take that thing's place. Here's an example. I have another controversial thought. I've got a lot of them. One is that men and women should, should be friends. Amy Bird has a book on this if you, if you want to read more. It's called uh, Why, Why Can't We Be Friends? Avoidance Isn't Purity. Many, specifically heterosexual folks, are afraid of and avoid opposite-sex friendships because of the possibility of lust. But that doesn't actually help any of us. And it actually contributes to us further objectifying one another. Mortify sin, yes, but something needs to take its place. What needs to take its place in this case? Brotherly and sisterly love. If it's the case that Christ has joined each of us to one another by the Spirit, it means that you're my brother and you're my sister. And I ought to treat you and love you as such. I can't be afraid of you because you're a possible reason for my temptation. That doesn't make any sense. No one is at fault for your sin but you. No one is at fault for my sin but me. Put lust to death, pursue sibling and neighbor love. Put pride to death and pursue a Christ-like humility. Put envy to death and cultivate an all-encompassing gratefulness to the Lord, the giver of all good good gifts. Paul summarizes these things when he defines walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5, 19-24. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Mortify the deeds of the flesh, but vivify, be energized in the fruit of the Spirit. Lastly, on this point, I think it's, it's important that when we're thinking of what to put to death, that we're putting actual sins to death and that we're vivifying actual virtues. Because if the focus is wrong, it can very easily lead to despair. I was watching the documentary Pray Away this week. Holiness, but to heterosexuality in marriage. And this led to depression, self-harm, suicide, and it makes sense. Being told not only that you are doing wrong, but that you are wrong compounds both guilt and shame. Jesus and Paul gave us a different example. As a matter of fact, it's not, it's, not, it, 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 it's not just bad for our single and gay brothers and sisters. It's bad for those of us who are married to see marriage on this kind of pedestal as though this is the ideal Christian life when Jesus and Paul have given us a different example. God calls each and every one of us to holiness. And holiness is where the rubber really hits the road. And here's also where you might find that you believe some false teachings about sanctification. Here are the three most common categories of wrong thinking on sanctification one, it's 100% God and 0% me. Two, it's 50% God and 50% me. And three, It's 0% God, 100% me. Now this first one is super common, especially in Lutheran and Reformed settings, because we're very used to affirming that God does everything in salvation. God saves sinners. We're dead in our sin and God has to bring us back to life. We don't contribute anything to our salvation, but our need to be saved. All of these things are true. But what about actually living the Christian life? Is there no work involved? is every talk of commands legalism I think of Luther uh, in his in his in his early life preached justification all in his early life preached justification all the time and then one day when he was when he was looking out at this church he was like wait a minute but like their lives aren't really changing and that's when, he, that's when he sat down and wrote his catechism, because one, of the, because one of the things that was important to him as a pastor was that his people were actually struggling with sin. And that's what this work of sanctification is. Some of us have, and it leads to a lazy, thoughtless, and unholy Christianity that forgets that the gospel is to be relentlessly applied to every sphere of human life. I can't Unfortunately, let go and let God make daily decisions for me. Like, there are decisions I have to make on a daily basis. And so if I pray for patience, the Lord is not going to just make me patient the next day. I mean, unless he's done that for any of you. If so, please let me know, and then I'll never say this again, because apparently that is what he does. But I've, I've never heard of that actually happening. What God actually does is you pray for patience... And then he puts really annoying people in, around you. And then he tells you, hey, love them. Love them. I'm going to help you. But like, I, by your spirit, I'm going to buoy you up. But you want to be patient. By, your spirit, lo- by my spirit, love them. So be careful what you wish for. Zero percent me ain't going to work. Yes, as our confession says, sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It is God's work. But it's not exclusively God's work. You got some work to do too. But the second, the second issue, that then bring, brings us into the second issue. How much, how much part do you really play? Is it 50 is it, is it 50? What if you mess up? Does that mean that the whole project falls apart? Does the Lord just kind of wind you up and then leave you on your own to mortify and vivify? And then at the end of time, he tells you, look, I handled my part of the group project. Where's yours? Some of you may be that, uh, like, like, when you, like when you do have a group project, some of you may be the ones who like end up doing all the work and then you got the slackers and they get the same grade and it makes you upset. The slacker was me, but um, uh, you know some of y'all. You know I'm thankful for the perfectionists among you who helped me along the way. Now some of us, some of us think some some of us think that that's the way that it works. But but I think most of us end up end up acting like one of the two extremes are true. And it's this third extreme that actually causes the most existential crisis. This zero percent God, one hundred percent me. Now I don't think any of us would actually say this about ourselves but practically, this is the way that a lot of us function. And quite frankly, this is, this is the one that actually leads us to the most despair. As an example, I want, you to, I want you to think of a sin that you've recently struggled with, perhaps one that you've struggled with for a long time. Maybe it's anger, maybe it's bitterness, but maybe it's lust, envy, pride, one of these things. I want you to consider, I want you to consider that, that, that sin and consider how long you've struggled with it. Now, I want you to think about how you would feel if the Lord told you that you would struggle with that particular sin for the rest of your life. That wouldn't feel great, would it? And one of the reasons it feels worse, I think for some of us, is because we operate with the assumption that if we just try hard enough, then it's going to go away. I'll be transparent with y'all. I, 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 um, I, I one of one, one of my struggles is with is with pride and arrogance. My dad and I, my dad and I actually share this, and we just call it supreme supreme confidence. We 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 share it, and we pray about it constantly. We're constantly intentionally mortifying it, constantly seeking the Lord in His humility, but it still crops up. If I, thought, if I thought that it was my effort alone that got rid of my sin, I would be in despair. What really comforts me? This also comes up whenever we try to battle unjust, big unjust systems, whether at work or in society broadly. What What about when those things seem unchangeable, so big that nothing you can do can really matter? Maybe you're you're a doctor in healthcare, or a lawyer dealing with the law, or even a fast food worker dealing with your manager. In an unjust situation, what what recourse do you have? Do Do you just work harder, hoping that one day somebody will recognize my work? What do you do? A hundred percent me with no God, is, is that's, that's no way to live. So how does sanctification really work? This is why it's important to just go to the scriptures, because the scriptures have no problem with emphasizing both God's action of sanctifying you and your own work. Like, it's literally not a problem in the scriptures. Back to Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So is it all God's work? Yes. Do you have to work hard? Yes. The word of God doesn't actually see any contradiction there. Immediately after talking about the gifts that God has given us in his grace, Peter says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Look, okay, this, this, this verse came up this past week when a Texas State Senate election fraud expert used this verse and said that it's about her job and election fraud. I'm like, this, this actively made me angry. I'm like, you're just, you're throwing out this beautiful, this beautiful text and saying it's about election fraud? Sorry, this is not about election fraud. This is about Peter, this is about Peter talking about the calling of Christ on your life. Peter is saying in this text, Christ has done an amazing work for you and in you. Now go live the life that he has called you to live. Become who you are. God has declared that this is who you are in Christ. Now you got to actually live that life. So is it all God's work or do we have to work hard? Yes. In Ephesians 2.10, after a great declaration of the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith, Paul says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is it all God's work or do we have to work hard? Yes. Yes. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Is it all God's work, or do we have to work hard? I'm going to say it one more time. You might be... You might be nervous. You might be nervous about saying whether it's God's work or whether it's yours. You might want to avoid pride on one hand and laziness on the other. Here's the secret. What the apostles seem to care about is that you do, is that you do the work and that God gets the glory. That's what the apostles are worried about. I would suggest that that's where we move our concern to, that we do the work and that God gets the glory. Because because the only only way that we can do the work is if God is doing the work in us. To close, I want you to know why this is good news. Like really good news. It's hard, but it's it's good news. So remember that quote? Remember that quote from the beginning about racism being, being permanent and stuff? I think it applies broadly to the permanence of sin. These are also you're probably to struggle based on that vision. So what he's talking about is he's saying that this is a a lifelong struggle, and it would actually be helpful for all of us to recognize a lifelong struggle when we see it. And it's my hope that when we see sin for what it is, that we, instead of falling into despair, though that's, of course, a risk, that instead we commit to the struggle. Westminster actually calls it a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. You're going to fight sin for the rest of your life. And you should. We're not perfectionists. The work won't be done before we die. Even the good that we do will be in some way tainted. But that is not the end of the story. That same chapter in Westminster continues. This is, this is uh, in, the, in the confession, chapter 13. It says, in which war, although the remaining corruption... For a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part does overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Good news. If you fight, you will win. Because of your effort? No. Because Christ has already won. And because you are buoyed up by the very spirit of the living God, you may lose battles. As a matter of fact, you will lose some battles. But you will not lose the war because you cannot lose the war. Because you're not fighting alone. Not only do you have the body of Christ fighting alongside you, not, not only has he given you his word, not only has he given you the sacraments as physical comforts, but, 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 but more importantly, the one who saved you is able to sanctify you to the uttermost, and he will. There is no more comforting word that we have to offer you, brothers and sisters. So why must we obey? Why must we believe? Because we know that our reward is hidden with Christ. No matter what obstacles you face, no matter what ridicule you undergo, no matter what sins, principalities, rulers, or enemies attempt to discourage you, you will win because Christ has won. And even Derrick Bell knew this. When when considering how he resisted such, such a massive evil like systemic racism, he wrote, I have relied on my faith. Particularly in hard times, my Christian faith provides reassurance that is unseen but no less real. It never fails to give me the fortitude I need when opposing injustice, despite the almost certain failure of my action, to persuade those in authority to alter their plans or policies. For me... It is my most powerful resource. Is it yours? Repent. Believe the gospel, that Jesus Christ has died for your sin and was raised for your justification. And then get to work, knowing that it is God who works in you. Let's pray.